This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. And in this corner, we have Sarah Welch Larson. And in the opposite corner, we have Kevin McLenathan. Yes, that's right, listeners. We are going to be doing a boxing-themed episode this week. Two boxing movies that we're going to be talking about. First up is going to be the new one. We're going to be talking about Michael B. Jordan's directing debut and the third movie in the Creed franchise, Creed 3. And in the opposite corner, we have a movie that probably maintains the heavyweight title of all boxing movies. Listeners, we're going to be discussing Martin Scorsese's 1980 film, Raging Bull. Two podcast hosts will enter the ring. Hopefully both will leave, but that remains to be seen on episode 371 of Seeing and Believing. I spent the last seven years of my life living out my wildest dreams. Bianca, Rocky, my dad. This is built on their shoulders. Yes, we're here on episode 371 of Seeing and Believing, and I briefly considered doing kind of a ringside announcer voice for the lead-in to this segment. Uh, I just eventually decided against it because you know, I just I guess I don't have the gumption for that kind of thing these days. Better to be the boxer than the ringside announcer, I think, in this scenario anyway. Uh, fair enough, but I, I will say because we have gone without the mouth guards, because we are podcasting, you know, it's an audio mm-hmm. format, mm-hmm. no mouth guards so we can be intelligible, but that means, you know, when the fisticuffs come, you know, don't go for the face. <laughs> I'll make sure to uh, keep it keep it clean. I will keep the fight clean. All right. Well, glad to hear it. Listeners, we've got a boxing-themed episode, which means that sort of wordplay is probably going to be coming fast and furious throughout <laughs> this episode. So you have been warned in advance. We're, of course, going to be talking about, in my opinion, the greatest boxing movie of all time in the Watchlist segment with Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to the latest challenger to enter the ring, (laughs) Creed 3. To recap, it's probably not all that controversial to say, Sarah, that 2015's Creed is the reigning champ of the recent crop of legacy sequels. That is, movies that take a decades-old hit and try to come up with a continuance for its world and characters. However, what started off as a spiritual successor to Sylvester Stallone's Rocky, with Stallone himself reprising the role of the Italian stallion, has now grown beyond even him in Creed III, with Balboa barely getting a passing mention in some dialogue. Now the focus is squarely and solely on Michael B. Jordan's Adonis Creed, on top of the world after the events of his previous two outings, with a loving family, a palatial home, and all the fame and fortune that comes with being the champ. But a childhood friend and former boxing prodigy, Damien, played by the great returning <laughs> Jonathan Majors, resurfaces after serving a long sentence in prison, and Damien will do just about anything to prove that he deserves his shot in the ring. To settle the score and the ghosts of their past, Adonis must put his future on the line to battle Damien, a fighter who has nothing 
to lose. So that's a pretty epic description mm-hmm. of the plot to this movie. And, you know, this is fitting. You know, the the Rocky movies and the now the Creed movies are kind of about these big confrontations with with one fighter, or at least one fighter, who has nothing to lose, <laughs> and uh, seeing them slug it out for, for primacy. So that being the case, though, I know, Sarah, that you recently caught up with the at least the second one, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm, maybe we can start there. How does this new third installment stack up against those first two Creed movies? And do you see any ways in which this new one has evolved maybe from those two? Oh, it's definitely evolved. So I liked, probably loved uh, the first Creed. And that was always going to be a little bit of a hard sell for me because I'm just not a sports movie person. And I know literally nothing about boxing. Um, Creed 2, I think, feels as though it's falling under kind of a, a similar formula of sports movies you can you can kind of watch the rise and the fall of creed and his career in that movie in kind of a predictable way it it feels a little bit more workmanlike even than the original creed which i I do think is brilliant creed 3 felt like a breath of fresh air because stylistically i was seeing stuff that i hadn't really seen in a lot of sports movies before with a lot of flourishes that felt as though they were intentional and smart and over the top in a way that kind of gets at the emotion of the story. So Michael B. Jordan both stars in this movie and also directed it. And he directs it with a really sure hand. It feels like a good debut to me, partly because he knows the kind of story that he's trying to tell and he's going to use some interesting tools in his toolbox in order to be able to do it. I can tell that he loves the art form of anime. And you can see a lot of that influence here in the fight scenes, but also in the emotional stakes of the story. And he's very smart about the way that he blocks and frames his characters in order to be able to tell that story both in and out of the ring. So in even just the first fight, the way that Creed himself is framed so that you can tell what he's thinking about and how he's going to line up his next move and what he's going to do once he's able to take that shot. Um, I kind of knew that I was in good hands and I was really hoping that he would be able to follow through. Maybe we can talk about whether or not he is able to follow through on that big swing early on in the movie. But I was on board for the ride, and I really appreciated the way that Michael B. Jordan was able to tell this story with flourishes that I wasn't really expecting to see, but really appreciated seeing. So curious to know if those swings worked for you. Yeah, so um, I agree with you that it was really refreshing to see Jordan really, I mean, it is... it might sound a little forced to make Raging Bull comparisons just just because we're going to be talking about it in this episode as well. Mm-hmm. But there really are some some flourishes here that feels like Jordan, you know, has been paying attention to boxing movies of of yesteryear and was taking notes. There, it's really nice to see, especially in the climactic confrontation here, that um, there's a lot of the expressionistic touches that you find in something like Raging Bull, where the boxing ring, it's not just a sporting event, it's not just a physical contest, there's um, uh, an emotional and maybe even spiritual component Mm. to what's 
happening between these two fighters. And it's nice to see Jordan have the confidence to go for something like that in his first outing. That's very promising. And I'm curious to see if that kind of promise is going to uh, follow through if he chooses to uh, continue making movies from the director's chair. Um, I think the... This is a it's this is a strange movie for me because I feel like in its first half it might be the best Creed movie. Oh wow. And a lot of that has to do with Jonathan Majors again. Mm. This is it, it's kind of weird that this is the second episode in a row where we've reviewed a blockbuster where Jonathan Majors plays an impossibly fascinating villain that it feels like the movie doesn't quite know how to use to its fullest advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in a little bit. But I think that this first half where we get the stakes of their emotional relationship between Adonis and Damien established and where Majors really kind of makes a portrait of maybe the most sympathetic of any uh opponent in the in at least in the creed franchise arguably in the entire like rocky cinematic universe <laughs> that's really impressive and i was really excited to see where they took it because it almost seemed like this is a movie that's setting up in a, a reversal of expectations where our hero is not the underdog he's the big dog and the villain is the underdog. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious to see where that went. I don't think it really backs that up in the end. It kind of, or maybe it backs off from that, which to me made the film kind of end on a more deflating note. So I'm a little bit maybe more mixed on it than you are. But I think there are some high points of this film that I, I had a good time with, even if I came away from it feeling kind of meh in the end. Yeah, I kind of want to talk about that central tension. I really appreciate that the movie takes its time to establish those personal stakes and that relationship between Damien and Adonis. Um, I don't even know when they start, like where the turn precisely is. And I think this movie is smart about the ways that a friendship can sour and a friendship can turn doesn't always turn on just one single incident. It's kind of an amalgamation of things building up over time, whether that's all at once or um, over a longer period of time. But this movie does a good job of making that turn not just be one specific incident within the film. I feel as I feel as though that turn happens slowly and it's not just Damien deciding that he's going to turn and be a, a, a heel, I guess, in another sports parlance. Um, I appreciate that the movie starts off with just giving us a picture of Creed's world. He's retired. He is at the top of the world. He has a loving family and he's happy with his life. And then we get the entrance of Damien as just sort of this shadowy figure from Adonis's past. And the movie takes its time. So we can tell that this guy may not necessarily have the best intentions towards Creed or towards his family, but the movie gives us the ability to just kind of sit with that 
unease and tension for a really long time and to get to know Damien as a character and not just as a villain. I think that that's a strength of the movie and that it's willing to spend its time getting us to where we need to go and to be able to build that tension towards the inevitable breaking point. Because this is a sports movie. There's going to be a climb to um, some sort of uh, triumph and then an inevitable fall and then a climb back out of that fall into triumph again. And what I appreciated about Creed 3 is that that climb to the first turning point gives us a lot of time to just spend time living with these characters and getting to know their situations. We know that Damien is desperate. We know that Creed um, basically has everything that he wants. And so I think where this movie sticks for me a little bit is that Creed is essentially, you know, the establishment here. And I think in every other movie, I haven't seen all of the Rocky movies, but definitely in all of the other Creed movies, he's kind of fighting his way up past the establishment. He's he's an underdog. And I feel like boxing stories more than almost any other sports movie tend to be underdog stories more than anything else. You have to be a contender. And in order to be a contender, you have to be punching literally above your weight. And so there's a weird tension here where our hero is someone who has already been a contender, has already made it to the top of the game, and is essentially working as a kingmaker for other characters. And so one of the things that I wish that the movie had gotten into a little bit more was Creed's role as that kingmaker, as somebody who has the ability to say, yes, you're ready, you can go and try to, you know, gain a title, you, you're you ready for this match. And I kind of feel as though the movie sort of elides that role that he's playing. Um, in another boxing movie with a slightly different focus, I think Damien would have been the hero and Creed would have been the villain. And so it's interesting to see Creed as being kind of framed as that establishment and having most of his decisions just sort of be checked as, yes, this was the right decision purely because he's the protagonist. I don't know if you felt that tension or not, but it's something that I was thinking about, especially in that back half. I, I think it's a, it's a tension uh, between uh, Jordan's directing and the screenplay itself. So I think that Jordan as a director is very uh, aware of that dynamic that you're mentioning, that uh, Adonis Creed in, in this situation, he's the establishment. He's He's the guy at the top of the world. He's he, he's the big threat that the underdog has to take down, right? Uh, you, you see it in, in lots of little touches, especially in the production design. The way that, uh, the way that, for example, Adonis's home is just constantly shot in a way where its opulence is emphasized. Mm. Everything is is just fantastic. It's enormous. There's literal Greek columns in their living room. They've got, you know, live-in help. They've got glass floors. Uh, his wife, Bianca, played by Tessa Thompson, has an in-home studio. Like, it's it's constantly emphasized with every moment that we spend in that house, and we spend a lot of time in that house, that this guy is fabulously wealthy, fabulously famous, has everything uh, a man could want. And by emphasizing that, I think Jordan is very intentionally setting up the contrast between him and Damien, who we meet after he gets out of prison. He's on parole. He's literally wearing an ankle bracelet that has to be removed before his first fight. Um, and, and there's some uh, something in their past that uh, has 
given them cause for for some sort of grievance. Mm -hmm. Um, And that contrast, I think, is so sharp that it can't be anything but intentional. The problem maybe comes with the screenplay, which uh, was written by Keenan Kugler and Zach Balin, where having set up that dynamic, it it ties itself in knots in its second half, trying to almost try to convince it that no, really, Adonis is is the is the underdog here, and he's he's really the guy who's got to take back the power. He's he's the one who's got to punch up, and I'm I'm I was just not buying it, and I think it's such a it's such a weird cop out of the themes that the film has seemingly been setting up so carefully up to that point mm-hmm. that I I think it's it's a fatal flaw that basically torpedoes that that second confrontation so that even though there are those emotional dynamics in the fi- climactic confrontation i feel like jordan's directing the heck out of it but the way that the script has set it up it feels very insincere yeah i think it's telling that at one point in the movie both men face off against each other and it's just the two of them in the room as kind of a directorial flourish and I think that the moments when it's just Adonis and Damien facing off against each other, that's when the movie really works for me because it is just about those emotional stakes between these two characters. You take away all of the other trappings, you take away Creed's wealth, you take away Damien's background, and you just bring it into kind of this this personal grievance that these two characters have against each other. I think that's when the movie really does work. And that's part of what carried the rest of the film forward for me, even despite, I think, that fatal flaw of trying to present Creed as an underdog. I do agree that that's something that doesn't quite gel. But through the direction, I think I bought that interpersonal grievance and I bought the emotional stakes between these two men that I was able to be carried through the rest of the movie even though at the very end, I think it does fall a little bit flat. So I'm I'm not like 100% on board with this movie, but I was on board enough and carried through with the action and with how these two men are facing off against each other that the outside, you know, setting of this movie didn't quite bother me as much. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it just feels like a shame because jordan takes such big swings with the way that he frames that final confrontation like for example there's uh, a moment where you know he uh, adonis takes a punch and gets knocked back against the ropes and there's a there's a smash cut to uh from behind him and the ropes become prison bars mm-hmm. and that's such a a strong and potent image that uh you want I or at least I wanted to give the movie all the credit in the world for doing that, but then I stop and think, but wait a minute, he's the, like, <laughs> Damien's the guy who who has been behind bars for his peak years. Um the the fact that Adonis is feeling like he feels very uh boxed in and, and uh imprisoned by his guilt is emotionally true. But in terms of the actual narrative that has been set up to that point, it feels it feels like I'm being told two different things by the movie. And I just for me, I was just unable to uh, forget the fact that, you know, there's a scene where we get uh, Adonis Creed wearing a suit, speaking with another fighter's manager 
uh, setting up Damien almost as like a, a fall guy. Like mm-hmm. just, we need somebody to fight your, your, uh, your contender. Uh, this guy really wants to, so let's do it, which feels a little exploitative. And it's not entirely clear to me that the movie is how much the movie is trying to lean into that moment as being read that way. And how much of it is just me kind of feeling that way about, about, it myself. I mean, I kind of felt that tension too. And I felt as though that was one of the many pebbles that kind of start the avalanche of this turn between these two characters where they do finally start to turn against each other. At that moment, I think I sat up because it felt as though through that piece of dialogue, Creed was being set up as that kingmaker and as that person at the top who does need to be knocked down a little bit. And maybe the movie feels as though just again, through the plot structure of being a sports movie, just getting knocked down and then coming back, training his way back up again through another training montage might have been enough character development for him to get past that mistake of selling his friend out. Again, I don't fully buy that piece either, but I do think that it leads to some interesting tensions because Adonis Creed isn't a perfect person. And I think the movie recognizes that he isn't a perfect person and that he's dealing with a lot of guilt and shame for things from his past and then also for selling his friend out. I don't know how well it holds all of those things together again, but I do think that it's it's wrestling with itself in some interesting ways. And I kind of like that messiness personally, because otherwise this would be a very slick, kind of brutal movie about someone who sells out their friend completely and has absolutely no remorse about it whatsoever. Without giving away too much about the ending... Um, this is not a movie that deviate, that colors too far outside the lines for the Creed franchise. It's, it's not trying to subvert expectations to such a great extent that audiences are going to be really surprised by, by where it goes. And I think that maybe that's one of my sticking points with the movie is that the, the triumphant moments that say that we get at the end of the uh, the the original Rocky, where Rocky loses the fight, but he he, it's a moment of unmitigated triumph for him. Like the 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 match wasn't the point; something else was the point, and him going the distance was whether like that was the real thing that we were hoping to see him uh, triumph at, mm-hmm. and I feel like. This movie, it almost feels like at the end, there is a moment of triumph, but the the thing the the thing that is being won, the victory that is being won, seems like the wrong kind of victory to be celebrating. Hmm. Maybe. Hmm. I'm I'm trying to think through like precisely how and why this does still work for me despite kind of following that formula and maybe it's because the recipe that Michael B. Jordan is using here you know your typical sports movie recipe is something where he's willing to play with some of the flavors in some interesting ways that for me it was enough to be able to see that kind of variation without having to see too much of a thematic variation like it's a sports movie. There's going to be a fall. There's going to be a triumph. There's going to be, um, a, you know, a training montage to get to that point. But again, I think a lot of it is the filmmaking and the camera work that he's using here. And a lot of the, I, I, don't, I don't know, the 
aesthetic flourishes that he puts at play. Um, the camera's very dynamic. He's using a lot of interesting angles. And he's not just doing this in the ring, but he is doing it in the ring primarily to build tension. And he, I think he does a very good job of building that tension up until a breaking point and then just a little bit past that breaking point before something turns. That happens in the ring, but it also happens outside of the ring within the walls of Creed's home. And there was a scene in this movie that actually made me think of one of the ones that we talked about in our best of 2022 episode, specifically the conversation in um, Decision to Leave, like the interrogation conversation in the mirror where you see two mm -hmm. different people's perspectives going back and forth. There is another conversation in this movie where two characters are talking to each other through a mirror and they're talking to each other's reflections. And it doesn't feel quite as showy as some of those fight scenes that are happening here, but it does show a pretty remarkable grasp, I think, of being able to do emotional storytelling without having to explicitly state everything. And this movie does explicitly state quite a lot <laughs> of what it's doing here. It's not very shy about its themes or what it's trying to say. But because the movie doesn't just lie back on the script and just lie back on the explicit statement of those themes, I think I was willing to trust where it was going at least in terms of interpersonal emotional story, precisely because Michael B. Jordan is able to find those interesting character angles and tell us a little bit more about the tensions between these characters, even through something as simple as having two characters talk to each other at angles from a mirror as opposed to directly face to face. This this movie does do some interesting things uh, with the way it kind of does invite the audience to ask questions about um you know what what happens when you know the the champ kind of walks away from boxing so we we do see you know there, there's an opening scene in this film where we kind of see the the last hurrah for adonis you know winning a title and then you know he takes a step back and he's kind of more of a promoter uh running a gym being a family man mm -hmm. and the film kind of seems uh interested in well what does what does a person do who's sort of built their life around uh, physical conflict? Um, how does that how how do they hold themselves when they no longer have that outlet? And in fact, Bianca uh, explicitly calls that out in Don. She says, uh, "You no longer have that outlet in boxing, so maybe you need to talk now. You need to learn to talk about your emotions." Mm -hmm. Which again, not subtle, but it's also um, one of the it's the first time, at least in these Creed movies, where the the film seems interested in kind of digging into boxing itself and what it um, what it does to the characters who give themselves over to it, and um, kind of what it can mean to engage in it. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that to be interesting, especially in the way that that kind of conflict is instantiated in the character of. Uh, Adonis and Bianca's daughter, who is, uh, you know, in elementary school and is having to learn how to uh, deal with her own emotions and her own impulses towards towards violence and boxing. She wants to learn to box like her dad, mm -hmm. but she doesn't know that the stuff that he does in the ring isn't necessarily stuff you do outside of the ring. Mm -hmm. And the the that boundary, I think, is something that the film kind of prods at a little bit. I would have liked to see it prod at a little bit more. And I thought maybe it was going that way 
with how sympathetic Damien was in mm. the first half. Um, it didn't quite go all the way there, but I think there's some interesting stuff that's playing with. Yeah. I love the way that Creed looks at his daughter when she successfully throws like a, a beautiful punch in the gym as well. There, there's a very strong, I think, I think there's good chemistry between these two characters and there's also a very strong emotional attachment here. Um, and I don't know, like... I do wish that that had been explored a little bit more, but the flashes of it that we got were just about almost enough to carry me through into believing that Creed has, you know, an interesting and rich home life outside of the walls that we're seeing him in, because ultimately this is going to be a boxing movie. So it's going to be primarily about Creed's own bouts and struggles within the sport as well. So be, before we do kind of a, a transition out of this discussion, I do want to get your thoughts on the maybe the performances mm. a little bit. We've already talked about Jonathan Majors, and I I mean I have to say it again, it's crazy how watchable he is. Uh, there's just the way that he builds up Damien as a person who uh, has all this thwarted ambition and and bitterness mm. and kind of a, a need for his shot that he never quite got because of his time behind bars, I think is so compelling and maybe is uh, partly to account for the way that the film feels unbalanced in the second act is because you just are so taken in by him that it's difficult to buy the heel turn almost, or at least it was for me. Hmm. Um, But I'm curious to get your thought on maybe like the, the supporting cast as a whole, because I feel like they get a lot of time as well. We get a lot of time with uh, the the domestic situation with Bianca and their daughter named Amara. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also uh, some some added drama in the form of Felicia Rashad's uh, Marianne, the uh, his his mother, and um, me. <laughs> like there might be a little bit more drama than the movie needs <laughs> for in that in that quarter as well. But I think that I, I'm curious to get your thought on the. The performances and how they kind of worked for you in, in this film and how they compared to maybe like the previous supporting cast of the of the other Creed films. And maybe this is getting back a little bit to the anime influence that I was seeing in a lot of this, but everything feels a, just a little bit heightened to me. And the fact that everybody was working on kind of a similar register of heightened emotion made me believe that world a little bit more. I think it would have been a little bit harder to dig in if somebody had been more understated than everybody else or if everybody, if one person had been giving a bigger performance. Jonathan Majors is giving a big performance here, but he's doing it in a way that I think is very interesting and also real and lived in at the same time. Um, That subplot with Marianne, I think, plays into some other anime tropes that I don't really want to get into too much. (laughs) But it was something that I recognized the moment that it happened, like the moment that she first appeared on screen. And I I think I bought into that character arc precisely because it was kind of signaled from a good distance away. Um, I kind of wish that we got a little bit more Tessa Thompson here, which is funny because we don't get a lot of her in the previous Creed movies. She's still kind of a side character in those and she gets Mm. to take a little bit more of a central role here but i don't know as much about her interiority other than what she explicitly tells the camera or what she explicitly tells other characters in conversations and that's some good and interesting stuff like i like her as a performer and i think she's doing a pretty admirable job here but 
I wish that we were able to spend a little bit more time just following her going about her day. We get a little bit of that with Creed as we're establishing that he's a family man now. He's he's hung up his boxing gloves. He's no longer fighting people in the ring for a living. Um, but we don't really get that same sense of time or lived in space with Bianca quite so much. And hmm. I kind of wish that we had gotten a little bit more because so much of what she is doing as a supporting character is supporting Creed's own personal journey and a little bit of Amara's as well. Um, there's some flashes of, of interiority, but again, it's mostly stuff that has to be explicitly said in the script. And then, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, I, that's interesting. I, I actually was really interested in what the film is doing with her own artistic pursuits. I mean, mm -hmm. she's been established as a, you know, a very talented singer-songwriter in her, in her own right. And there's even a... Um, conversation that takes place between her and Damien, where Damien asks her, you know, so how does it feel for you to uh, to see someone else performing a song that you wrote? Mm -hmm. And uh, for him, that question is edged with the, the kind of thwarted ambition that he feels from seeing Adonis kind of have the life that he always imagined for himself. But the answer that she gives is, is interesting. And I think that um, Tessa Thompson plays it really well where she says, where, where she hints that it's not easy, but she makes her peace with it because she, you know, she needs to protect her hearing. She kind of wants to, she, she's decided the kind of life that she's chosen and she wants to live that way, even if it means difficult choices for her. And I really liked it, the movie making time for something like that. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good note and I appreciate that, but we don't get to see that character development happen in real time. We're just mm. told that that's something that's happened off screen in between movies. And I kind of like being able to watch characters kind of wrestle through that issue, which is something that Creed and Damien are working through in real time in this movie. So maybe it would have been a little bit overstuffed if we had also spent that time with Bianca. But at the same time, she's already gotten to this point that we know that we want these other two characters to get to. And we don't get to see her actually do the work. She's just kind of a goalpost for them to reach. So hmm. that's kind of my frustration with that plot point. I guess, I, you know, that makes sense. And maybe that's kind of... Uh, emblematic of the movie as a whole is, <laughs> is that there, there's some really strong bones in the story evidenced by all these things that we say that we wish they had uh, taken more time with or employed a slightly more nuanced hand with and said, you know, there's, but there's kind of the demands of, well, we have to have the big crowd pleasing ritualized violence <laughs> of the, of the big title bout at the end. And so that kind of gets shuffled under the, under the rug a little bit, but yet, the bones are there, and maybe that's kind of uh, uh, where where we can leave it. It's just, or at least that that's kind of where I ended up with it. Anyway, it was or it had strong bones, but man, I I feel like it just kept throwing those haymakers and uh, didn't didn't quite. Yeah, the the, the metaphor is getting mixed. I is guess for you, they're not connecting for you. They're, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it's throwing haymakers, and I'm bobbing and weaving. <laughs> No, it's 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 getting it's getting off the rails already. With a little work, though, I think it could be a contender. All right, well, I'm going to end things here before I get too punch drunk to keep going, listeners. That is our review of Creed Three. It is out this weekend. If you've had a chance to see it, we're interested in your thoughts about this latest chapter in the Creed saga. You can email us at Seeing and Believing C A P C at gmail.com. Tweet us at C Believe Pod over on Twitter, or you can. 
can head on over to Letterboxd and comment on our entry for this movie. We have our account set up over there. Also, see Believe Pod. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about the greatest contender of them all, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull in the Watchlist segment in a second. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. So Sarah, as our fearless uh, promoter of the Seeing and Believing Twitter account, you're the one who's kind of calling the shots for the uh, question that we post to our listeners every Sunday. Uh, what questions did you post for them this week? So we knew that we were going to be covering Creed 3 and Raging Bull. So I simply asked, what's your favorite sports movie? Which um, I can't believe is a question that we haven't asked before, but I guess Creed 3 is the first sports movie that you and I have covered on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe that's a part kind of part of a uh, blind spot for us both is, you know, you mentioned in the earlier segment that you weren't a big sports movie person. Mm-hmm. I'm not really much of a big sports movie person either. So maybe we'll get some good recommendations out of uh, this this question from our listeners. Yeah, I think we probably will. Um, Christ and Pop Culture's own Jason Moorhead responded with Shaolin Soccer. <laughs> and I'm really glad that he did because it wouldn't be my answer for this question, but that movie is a riot. It's it's crazy. I remember seeing it for the first time and you know somebody kicks a soccer ball and it catches on fire and turns into a tiger. Nothing else like it in the sports movie canon for sure. <laughs> I mean, worthy of some good flourishes along the same lines of what Michael B Jordan was going for in Creed 3 potentially. I mean, we we talked about Michael B Jordan coloring outside the lines a little bit with his boxing sequences, but that is nothing. <laughs> nothing compared to the kinds of things that Stephen Chow comes up with in Shaolin soccer. Excellent. It's a good pick. Uh, We heard from Lindsay Dunn, who said, as a Hoosier, I feel obligated to say Hoosiers. I'm I'm married to a Hoosier myself. And Lindsay, you gotta gotta represent where you can. (laughs) You definitely should. Um, Sean Whiting responded with a very off-the-wall movie that I had never heard of before. Um, He replied with, of course, the very first movie I ever saw in the theater, Gus, the field goal kicking mule from 1976. (laughs) I have never heard of that movie. (laughs) <laughs> maybe something to add to the watch list potentially maybe uh, a good way sh- to round out our sports movie repertoire i think did did sean happen to give uh, i mean i guess the the plot synopsis is all there in the title but did he happen to 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 elaborate on uh what made it so uh, magical i feel like that title speaks for itself <laughs> Well, maybe maybe we'll catch up with it sometime. Thanks for writing in, Sean. Yeah. We also heard from Philip Marinello of the Substance Podcast, who responded with Raging Bull and Rocky are two of the best. So excited to hear our conversation about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have that conversation, too. So, so 
Is Raging Bull your all-time favorite sports movie? I mean, yeah, that's probably my pick, truthfully. I did. I was kind of tempted to get cute and answer something like The Big Lebowski for this. <laughs> um, but, I mean, no, it's it's probably Raging Bull. If not, if, if we're kind of like giving that uh, off to the side because we're talking about it. I also really like Million Dollar Baby. Hmm. Um, I think that's a really strong film. And, uh, of course, there's always Hoop Dreams, the the er Chicago sports movie of them all. All good picks. I ended up going a little bit more off the wall, probably because I'm not as much of a sports movie aficionado. Um, but mine is actually a documentary. It's 2018's Minding the Gap, which... I would argue counts as a sports movie because it's primarily about skateboarding and the emotional states of those skateboarders. I would not have made the connection with that as a sports movie, but that is a strong film and uh, a good one. I, I should I should revisit that sometime. It's definitely worth watching. Well, thanks, listeners, for, for writing in. If you uh, didn't get a chance to respond before we record this episode, we are, of course, still interested in any sports movies that you feel like we should be filling out our to watch cues with um, because yeah, we've, we've got some catching up to do for sure, but we appreciate all you listeners who shared this week and yeah, keep them coming. So Kevin, it's time to ring the bell for round two. (laughs) We have come to the watch list, which is the part of the episode where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. And then we discuss it. So Kevin, you picked Raging Bull, which I know is probably one of your all-time favorite movies. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you've mentioned that before on the podcast. Um, feels very fitting to go along with Creed Three. They're both boxing movies. There's both strong emotional threads with the main characters that inhabit these movies. Um, I don't know of very many people who are not familiar with Raging Bull. I feel like I was somewhat familiar with the structure, but for those who may not have had the chance to catch up with Raging Bull before now. Here's a quick synopsis. It traces the rise and fall of middleweight boxer Jake LaMotta, played by Robert De Niro in an Oscar-winning role, as he goes from obscurity in the Bronx to notoriety inside and outside the ring. But rather than the traditional sports movie plot structure of a slow rise and then a fall and then a rise again, Raging Bull traces LaMotta's career as a story of anger and control, with boxing serving as both outlet and exacerbator for LaMotta's rage. So, Kevin, I know, as we've established, this is one of your favorite movies, but I'm curious to know what it is that you find so compelling about this one. I'm always really interested in stories about characters who are sort of helpless before their own flaws Hmm. um the the thing about raging bull and and this version of jake lamada that de niro gives us is that it's not so much that he's he's a total brute he is a brute but he's he's not a a mindless brute he he's got uh enough self-awareness by the end of the film to know kind of what's wrong with him or at least that something is wrong with him and yet not really be able to change in any way and i think that the best movies or the the movies that i find really interesting are the ones that are are able to take a character like this who is almost incapable of of true life change and instead of ma- making that kind of the static monotonous character portrait finding all these uh little grace notes and 
interesting angles uh, to let the audience into that so that by the end, you know, even if the person is deeply unsympathetic as uh, LaMotta in this film very much is, um, you kind of come away from it um, with a sense of recognition. Mm -hmm. I've never been a boxer. I'm not a rageaholic. Uh, I've not done any of the things that LaMotta has done in, in this film. And yet it's strange how seeing another deeply fallen human being on screen can make you simultaneously aware of your own fallenness and mm. also grateful for the ways in which you've been spared from even even worse uh, in your in your own character. Mm. And I think that's kind of a gift. Um, I, I really like how Scorsese gives that to us, and I think that the scripture passage that ends this movie uh, where the Pharisees question a man whom Jesus has uh, healed from blindness. Um, they ask him if he's a sinner and the uh, the response is, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. All I know is that once I was blind and now I can see. And I think that expression of clarity um, is kind of what I always come away from with, with Raging Bulls. That is that sense that I do think this man is a sinner, but also I feel like watching his saga helps me see my own life and the, the lives of others around me that much more clearly. Hmm. I love that. Um, yeah, this was, it's a very good movie, you know, <laughs> nothing too controversial there. I think I was having some of some difficulty with it precisely because of the difficulty of Jake LaMotta's character. And at the same time, I didn't feel as though I could let the movie go or dismiss it. I think that Scorsese does a really good job of presenting this character to us as someone who is real and lived in and true and a portrait of an actual real life person without wallowing in any of the anger or the rage or the sin that permeates his life and also without excusing any of it either. And I think that that's kind of a remarkable balancing act that he's doing that doesn't even really feel like a balancing act to me. I think the more Scorsese I watch, the more I think that he's probably one of our greatest religious filmmakers mm. um, because he's capable of extending the grace of witnessing another human being in all of their flaws without condemning or without condoning anything that they do and then also using that as a way to reflect us back on ourselves so um hearing you talk about it i think clarified a few things for me because it, i did find this to be kind of a difficult movie even mm. as it was a very riveting one um riveting primarily through a lot of the craft that's on display here especially the editing thelma's maker is just so good in in my in my letterboxed review uh when i logged my rewatch of this i i i jotted down like this might be the best edited film of all time i mean <laughs> you know that's that's a very lofty statement to to be making but watching this again it's just it's so incredible just how uh 
don't know. I, I think a lot about how uh, somebody once uh, was talking to Thelma Schoon- Schoonmaker. This is a you know a pretty well known anecdote. Uh, somebody uh, Schoonmaker obviously uh, is is a a woman working in a male dominated industry, especially at the time that Raging Bull was made. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody asked her, you know, how can a nice woman like you? Uh, make such such awfully brutal, violent pictures, you know, and uh, Schoonmaker is supposed to have replied that, well, they aren't violent until I cut them, <laughs> um, until I've edited them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's wonderfully encapsulated in Raging Bull. And I think that's kind of why, even though it is a tough sit, I kind of, I, I keep coming back to it is that it's violent, but it's not violent in a, in a wallowing sort of way where we're just watching one guy just be the worst piece of garbage you can possibly imagine. Um, Scorsese is more like it's it's almost like the editing creates this world in this space where um, the brutality of humanity is is on display for all of us. So it's not just Lamada. This isn't a a movie where we're meant to sort of watch a bad person being bad and then feel good that we're not as bad as he is mm-hmm. um the there's so many times in this movie where uh reporters flash bulbs go off and, and there are all these 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 sharp uh edits around those those flash bulbs going off and then on the soundtrack there's you know women's screams or or, or men men shouting and it it all combines to create kind of this atmosphere of bedlam and this the sense that there's this massive humanity that's violent. It's not just Lamada's violence. It's just for a certain part of the world, there's just so much humanity on display that it it's it can't help but elbow each other in the ribs and punch, you know, throw a few throw a few punches. Mm. And I think that's kind of what makes it feel almost like a religious picture is Scorsese is Finding way to express in cinematic language not just one man's violence, but an entire uh, race of people, <laughs> an entire uh, swath of humanity that is just um, there. There's something sick in them, mm-hmm. and Scorsese isn't judging that necessarily. He's just presenting it and letting us draw our own conclusions. I think that is difficult sometimes. Um, because you kind of want him to draw conclusions or, or um, say something about that that will be a little bit more comforting, but he doesn't really give you that refuge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very a very interesting tack for him to take. Well, and I don't think he's not saying anything about it because the way that he presents it is in itself a comment on True. the yeah. fallen nature of humanity. Um, and I think the way that he presents it isn't just him pointing out a problem and saying, oh, that's a problem over there. I think he does a good job of getting at not the heart of the issue, but getting at some of the hearts and some of some of the core issues behind this level of violence. And I, I think you mentioned that this is a movie that kind of holds up a mirror to humanity. And it does that in the way that shows, you know, the universal in the specific, because it drills down so tightly onto Lamada's character and Lamada's psyche. And we get a little bit of additional flavor or, you know, ideas about the way that the world that Jake inhabits, like the way that that world works from the characters around him. But this movie is so deeply focused on just this one man and how he experiences and sees the world 
that we're able to understand something a little bit more deep about the entire world as opposed to trying trying to be extremely expansive and saying something super generic. Um, and I think some of that gets into all the way down to the craft of the editing and the framing as well. Um, every single cut felt unique to me. Like there's a lot of those flashbulb shots, but I couldn't think of a single instance where a flashbulb shot and then a cut in those fight scenes felt like it was predictable. Every single one of them was kind of surprising to me and also kind of built up that idea of all of humanity is watching, all of humanity is giving this man their attention and he's feeding off of it. And it's almost as though humanity itself is kind of condoning a lot of that range and violence because that's what that is what has brought him up until this point in his career and that's what's going to continue to fuel him even after his fall and i also think about the way that the movie frames jake as he's courting vicky his his future wife as well and scorsese does this in a way that kind of presents what's happening almost as just the facts without too much commentary on it. But there were moments that felt like commentary to me in that it doesn't feel as though Scorsese is just wallowing in the fact that LaMotta is preying on a literal 15-year-old girl. And it doesn't just wallow in the fact that he is abusive towards every single woman in his life. It's not just saying this is a fact and so we're going to present it and we're going to let you kind of rub your noses in it a little bit. He's also commenting on those relationships too, specifically when he first meets Vicky face to face. So there's a conversation between LaMotta and Vicky and it's kind of a shot reverse shot through a chain link fence. But every time we see LaMotta, we can see more of his face because we're more keyed into his interiority. But Vicky, we don't see very much at all. She's kind of bored. She's not all that interested. More of her face is hidden by that chain link fence. And then when she gets into the car with him, half of her face is literally cut in half by the windshield of the car as well. And that's not Scorsese being sexist in any way. That's Scorsese presenting LaMotta's own sexism for us to understand how he approaches the world and how he views Vicky, not as a human being, but as kind of a possession who can be one. And I really appreciated that because it felt subtle, but it also felt like a statement at the same time there, too. I mean, we could spend an entire episode just talking about uh, Vicky. Yes. <laughs> and just the... Just the complexity of the various things that Scorsese is teasing out in their relationship. The way that, I mean, Kathy Moriarty's face is just, it's its almost like a literal Madonna face, you know? Like, she, mm -hmm. she's... She looks like an icon of the Virgin Mary. She even wears a hairnet multiple times. She's styled like a Renaissance painting. Right. And uh, there's, uh, you know, there's a, a scene uh, where uh, they, they, they're, they're getting intimate in the bedroom and there's a, a picture of Jesus over LaMotta's shoulder. And then on the other side of a doorway, there's a picture of the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's, it's all Scorsese, you know, hinting at kind of the the um the well-known kind of uh dichotomy of the, the madonna whore complex the idea that women can only be either perfectly virtuous or completely untrustworthy and sexualized and it's in lamada's case that's almost literally true is that he's incapable of seeing women as as either 
something to be possessed, something to be sexualized, something to to want, um, something or something alternatively to be distrusted. And he doesn't really notice them other than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once uh, when, when he falls for Vicky, she's that you know that very demure, very um, uh, reserved young woman. But as soon as they're married, that's when. Uh, his his brutality really comes out, and it's just there, there's a lot we could say about it. But I really like how Scorsese again. He's just he suggests all these things, um, and it's it's all done again through suggestiveness rather than you know telling us telling us about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then when he does outright tell us something, um, again he just kind of presents it. I, I keep thinking about the scene where. Vicky has decided that she is going to leave and she goes into the bedroom to pack a suitcase and she's just walking like a woman in a dream and Lamada is begging for her to come back and Moriarty plays it just so beautifully because she's playing it wooden but you can tell that she has a facade up and she's trying desperately not to break under there and Scorsese lets it play out all in just one long take there's almost no cuts I think it's just one single shot from one end of the bedroom as we watch this drama unfold and the camera follows her as she walks from one end of the bedroom to the other and picks up her clothes and puts them into the suitcase and she is trying desperately to be able to get out and of course she isn't able to get out that time because he breaks her down and he breaks her down by saying that he's never going to do it again and we know that that's a lie and she knows that that's a lie and yet this is the sort of thing that happens all the time and the movie is honest about that it's not going to sell us a lie about how abuse does or doesn't work um that unflinching nature, I think, is part of what made this so difficult for me mm-hmm. to watch. Um, but I appreciate that Scorsese isn't really pulling his punches here, either with this relationship or with Lamada's relationship with his brother Joey, played by Joe Pesci, who also is just an incredible performance. On this rewatch, I think Pesci, I, I mean, what can you say about De Niro that hasn't already been said? It's just an incredible performance. Um, but watching this again, I really came away with a greater appreciation for Pesci's performance as well, where he's he's Lamada's little brother. Um, he obviously uh, feels just incredible loyalty to his brother in, in in a way that feels very much like you know the the way a little brother would be. Um, and that's what makes it all the more crushing when their relationship gets totally ruptured. Mm -hmm. Um, and what makes that final scene where, uh, where Jake is, you know, by himself, he's reciting that famous, uh, scene from on the waterfront Mm -hmm. where another, uh, brother confronts his older, (laughs) confronts his brother with, you know, ways that their relationship has been damaged but for Lamada, he's looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And I think that the grief in that moment doesn't work if you don't have uh, Pesci being such a, a live wire, but also s- almost underplaying that, that sense of, of loyalty and affection for such a deeply flawed person as Jake LaMotta is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of complex emotions that he's playing with and he has to get every single one of them right because there's the loyalty, there's the fear, there's the, I think there's some a good 
healthy or unhealthy dose of resentment in there as well. And all of those feel true and complicated. And it makes for a really heady cocktail where for so long, Joey is also unable to break out of that gravitational pull that LaMotta has. And so it makes the break feel even more potent because that break is essentially Pesci breaking out of, of gravitational orbit and maybe even violating some of the laws of physics that have been established by his relationship with his brother up until that point. And Pesci doesn't feel like he's stealing any scenes here, but he is the character that feels probably the stickiest to me just because he's making such a statement with just his existence and the way that he moves through the world, especially in the shadow of his older brother. And, and the way that... that he suggests an entire history <laughs> between them mm -hmm. that there's an early scene where Lamada uh, tells Joey to hit him in the face as hard as he can. And Joey doesn't want to for obvious reasons, but Jake bullies him until he actually goes through with it. And you get the sense that, uh, that this is a dynamic where it just that kind of violence is just sort of that's, their language. I'm not even going to say it's their love language. It's just it's just the lingua franca that they that they have with each other, mm -hmm. and that you know Pesci doesn't play it in a way that's it's tragic for him, but for the audience it feels it feels tragic that this is you know they they begin laughing at you know after hitting each other in the face a few times they start laughing and and roughhousing and that's sort of their their par. That they're at, and that's again, it's just it's a it's a great character moment for for both of them at the same time, uh, for almost different reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, it does a really good job of establishing just how messed up this relationship is from the outside. Again, it feels like holding up that mirror to humanity and and showing us something that is messed up, and that is, and that reflects some sort of a truth back on us as well. Um, I think part of the reason why this also worked for me as well as it does is that plot structure. I think I mentioned in our conversation about Creed that it kind of follows that sports movie plot structure of, you know, a rise and a fall and a rise again. This kind of feels as though it's the inverse of that because it's a struggle upward and then a precipitous fall downward and there's no coming back up from it. Um Maybe that made it feel more lived in. Maybe it's because I was kind of looking for an in because this is in part a sports movie, but also in part a, a personal drama. And I feel like I kind of expect sort of that three act structure. And Scorsese wasn't giving me any of that. And I love him for it. It's it's really interesting uh, when when you watch Raging Bull and, and notice that inversion of kind of the, the usual dynamic of a boxing movie, because Raging Bull is a tragedy. Yes. It's a, 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 a person who literally has a fatal flaw that they uh, are a complete slave to, and that is the flaw that ends up completely destroying them. And the way that that is just the 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 rise and the precipitous fall how that's an inversion of the the underdog story where somebody goes to their lowest point and comes up i think maybe tells you a lot about what makes for easy entertainment and what makes for truthful art hmm. <laughs> um not that that something can't necessarily be both or that one is you know more worthwhile they, they both have their place mm -hmm. but i think it's very telling that uh raging bulls is arguably the greatest boxing movie of all time and yet it 
totally does a completely different structural move than most boxy movies do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense that Paul Schrader would have written part of it too. <laughs> it's it's a great Schrader script too. The, probably the best thing Schrader ever wrote. And this is the guy who wrote tra- Taxi Driver. So, <laughs> yes. I mean, no, no slouch there. We've talked a lot about, I mean, we could talk about this movie forever. I mean, like I said, it's one of my favorites, but... It is a boxing movie. So let's talk about the boxing. Yes. Um, we you, you mentioned that watching Creed 3, there were some moments that, that pinged for you um, mm-hmm. because of the, you know, the expressionism in it here. And you actually, if I'm not mistaken, you watched Raging Bull the night before you got a chance to see Creed 3. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, so I'm kind of curious to know what you, what you made of the way Scorsese shoots these boxing scenes, not just in general, but kind of just individual sequences how they're different from each other within the same film yeah um well and to contrast a little bit with creed 3 i think the point of the boxing sequences in creed 3 is always what is one boxer's relationship to another and how can they negotiate that and that's not remotely what scorsese is going for here in raging bull i think he's much more keyed into just the emotional state of jake lamada himself and the way that he sees everybody else around him as um, someone to be overcome, someone to be overpowered, someone who cannot possibly get the drop on him because if they do, then he is finished as a human being. He, he is incapable of seeing the world as anything other than a competition. And the way that Scorsese shoots this, I mean, just those quick cuts, like Screwmaker's cuts are just so... incisive is is a terrible pun, but I'm going to use it anyway, because it works because every single cut has a point and a purpose and a way to punctuate the emotional state of Robert De Niro as he's moving about the ring. I think Scorsese is very much tapped into, so much tapped into LaMotta's head that he's able to show how LaMotta's mood shifts and changes with a shift and and change in his posture. And he uses the camera to kind of emphasize that and draw our attention to it without explicitly telling us that he's drawing our attention to it. The camera is moving a lot and it is showy, but it doesn't feel any more showy than it needs to be for a sport that relies on showmanship in order to be able to sell that conflict. Um, I love the shot where LaMotta gets knocked out and the camera falls with him. Um, and that's something that I think one of the earlier Creed movies borrows a little bit. And it's an, it's an interesting piece of giving us a chance to align ourselves with LaMotta, even though we don't necessarily ever want to be associated with this guy because it is kind of holding up that mirror to him um, and showing us that like we are LaMotta and he is us in a certain way and we're, we're able to identify with him and i like that scorsese kind of takes us along for that fall both inside and outside of the ring so i don't know like I, I appreciate that he's using a lot of interesting and dynamic angles and he's doing a lot of quick cuts and a lot of freeze frames whenever we get the flash bulb of the camera and it's oh, just man. a couple of them sublime moments <laughs> it's just a few seconds but every single one feels as though they're kind of him putting a stamp in history a little bit and he does that with the, the with the intertitles announcing what the fight is and who the opponent is and and the date and where it happened there's kind of that freeze frame moment there too but it feels like a trick that he uses in the irishman as well where he's kind of putting a stamp and a pin in history and he's saying this moment is important 
even if you may not recognize it to be important at that specific moment in time. Like he's doing it both with the camera flashes, which are literally freezing a moment in time kind of in universe, and then also with those memories and those headlines for those fights and saying like, this is a turning point for this character, even though that character may not be able to see it either. I, I just, I love those freeze frames. I think this is the first time that I've really fully appreciated the power of a freeze frame. And I think it's because he uses such restraint and just re restricting it to a couple of seconds at most. Well, it's exhilarating because the the fight where we, we get the, the most use of those those flashbulb freeze frames are kind of almost Lamada at at his peak or close to his peak, where he's just he's unstoppable, he's dominant, and he is utterly triumphant. There, there's a one of the freeze frames. He's uh, you know standing. It's a low angle. He's standing over his downed opponent, and he just looks like he's a titan. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 thrilling. And I think that. That's something this movie does cinematically that's so wonderful is that it it allows us to feel that thrill even though uh, you know immediately after that that little twinge of thrill in the moment you know are, we're able to consciously kind of analyze our our reactions and kind of modulate them because we remember who this guy is mm -hmm. and I think that's a really interesting use for him to put that to. I really also want to call out Michael Chapman's cinematography here. The way that the most of these matches, uh, or maybe not most of them, but very often Scorsese and Chapman shoot uh, the ring almost as if it's suspended in a void, and there's you know this mist kind of floating through the space, mm -hmm. and it's it's just such a wonderful way to make it clear that this it's not just a sporting event. Um, it's not just two guys trying to see who's better at a game or to win some prize money. It's existential almost. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also gives the effect of, well, who are the spectators on this? It's not just people in that room watching it. It's something else, something more cosmic. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I, I think... You, you mentioned something earlier in the segment that I thought was really interesting. You, you talked about the question of, well, who is watching this, the, these matches? It's all of us. And what are we seeing on there? We're seeing uh, uh, one man get bru brutalized and get brutalized in his turn. Mm -hmm. um, that is unmistakably Christological. And in Lamada's great downfall where Sugar Ray Robinson takes him down while he's just trying to hold on for dear life to those ropes mm -hmm. so that he loses, but he never gets knocked down. So he even loses on his own terms. Um, he's in the Christ pose on those ropes. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Scorsese is saying like Jake LaMotta is a Christ figure, but he is definitely saying something about there's something deeply spiritual about, uh, about spectating, about the entire world watching and holding its breath as one person just gets the living heck beaten out of him. Hmm. Um, there's something to that. It's a very Catholic way of, of looking at it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But it's also it, it's profoundly religious. And I think maybe that's what makes this movie, in the end, so sticky for me, is that I don't know exactly what the thesis statement of that is, but I know it's profound. And I keep coming back to it wanting to know, like, well, what exactly is profound about it? Oh, man. And I... I can't argue with that it's it's a movie that i think is going to be sticky for me as well i don't know if i want to return to it anytime soon to be perfectly honest um 
But I'm going to be thinking about the smoke that's kind of swirling in the void behind that boxing ring for a really long time. And I'm going to be thinking about those camera flashes as well, too. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad that you you had a chance to to wrestle with it. <laughs> so that can like bring another person into into that own into my own little like cinematic void. So uh, thank you for watching it. Yeah, I'm, thank you I'm for sharing you... it with me. I'm glad I watched it. Uh, listeners, if you've had a chance to uh, revisit Raging Bull or maybe even see it for the first time, we're really interested in your thoughts. We've gone long on this one because there's so much to talk about, and we didn't even scratch the surface. So mm-hmm. you obviously would probably have something to share with us as well so let us know on twitter over email or over on letterboxd we love to hear it next week we are going to be uh continuing in a religious vein the mm-hmm. new release is is a little foreign film called godland mm-hmm. about a, a priest who travels across was it iceland i believe yes yeah. um it's uh one that i'm i'm looking forward to i've been interested in for a while so i'm looking forward to digging into it with you, Sarah, but you've got a, an interesting pairing to go with it for the watchlist segment. We've gone slightly galaxy-brained again, so Godland has to do with a priest who is going to Iceland in order to run a parish and presumably um, having a difficult time of it and eventually having a crisis of faith, from what I know about the movie. Um, so I've chosen to pair it with My Night at Mods, which is about a Catholic who has a very set um, view for how he wants his life to run. And he gets all of that challenged on one fateful night when he goes over to a friend's house and meets a divorced woman who basically upends everything that he believes about the universe. So um, there's some thematic pairings in there. We'll see how well those two play out. But I'm really, really interested in talking about My Night at Mods with you. That can be viewed on HBO Max. It's on the Criterion channel, and it's also on Amazon Prime. So it should be accessible if you're interested in watching along with us. Yeah, Romare is uh, one of those filmmakers that I sadly only know by reputation. I've not seen any of his films, so I'm really looking forward to taking my maiden voyage with him next week. So thanks for picking that one. Of course. Um, you've also got some some big news to share. Uh, this week, you know, literally tomorrow, after uh, tonight's recording tomorrow, you are going to be off to a film festival. Yeah, I am covering True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri. It's a documentary film festival. First film festival that I've been able to cover as press, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, I'll be writing about it in depth for Brightwall Darkroom, um, but I'm also going to be giving a little bit of a sneak peek of the movies that I saw there here on Seeing and Believing as well. So you'll probably hear it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to featuring that as well. Uh, listeners, we'll probably be taking up that that middle segment with you and just digging deep into all the movies you saw. I'm a little, I've got a little bit of critic envy, I'm not going to lie, because <laughs> the lineup that you've got planned for yourself sounds fascinating. Oh, yeah. And the theme for the festival this year is This is a Test, which has to do with kind of trial and error and the business of being alive as a human being. Um, There's a lot of really interesting movies in the lineup, so quite a few that I'm looking forward to seeing, and I I can't wait to catch them, and then I can't wait to unpack them a little bit here with you as well. Oh, man. Lots of good stuff coming your way, listeners, next week, but that'll do it for this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part 
by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.